all the things that we've attributed to, quote, Indians are probably myths that we create. And some of them are myths to justify why you reboot them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want their land. You can't say, oh, these are civilized people. You have to instead portray them as uncivilized. Hi, you're listening to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking to Dr. Susan Sleeper-Smith about agriculture in the Ohio Valley and a very particular kind of agriculture. So Dr. Sleeper-Smith, could you tell us more about that? The period that we're talking about is going to be just before the Revolutionary War. And so it's the end of the 18th century and the Ohio River Valley is quite a populous region. It's populous because of the environmental favorability to agriculture. And what makes this region so favorable and such an important food source for indigenous people is that it has an extensive river system. And if you think of the Ohio River Valley as running from present-day Pittsburgh all the way to the Mississippi, north of the Ohio River Valley are a group of very large tributary rivers and with multiple streams off of them. And those areas create very favorable places for indigenous agriculture. Indigenous agriculture is really, we're talking about extensive cornfields that run along the river bottoms. And because the snow melts from the Great Lakes, drain into the Ohio River Valley through all these river systems. Each spring, they dump very fertile soil on the River Valley lands. And that makes it possible for indigenous villages connected or lying along all these river systems to remain in place. So what we're looking at is what we call continuous agriculture, Indigenous villages rarely moved. And basically, because of the way that women farmed the land, they practiced no-till agriculture. And this kept the lands on which they grew their crops highly fertile. And so you have in the Ohio River Valley very extensive crop yields, particularly for corn, beans, and squash which are the three major crops grown by indigenous women. So that's kind of an overview of the valley. But north of the valley, the river itself is almost a 1,000 miles long. And for us, it's a river that's greatly changed. So if you go along the Ohio today, you see all kinds of small dams, ways in which the river has been diverted. But at the end of the 18th century and well into the 19th century, this was a really slow-moving river. You generally traveled that river in the early spring when the snows melted and the rivers were high. But because the river itself was another agrarian landscape, this time a natural landscape filled with an incredible variety of fish, what you have is 
Indian villages that have tremendous sources of protein from the river and from the tributary rivers, as well as staple crops of corn, beans, squash, and other things that were grown. So it is an incredibly rich landscape from probably 608 D forward until the 19th century. This is one of the most highly populated river valleys in the nation. Right. Yeah. And that's something I wanted to really hone in on in this episode as we talk here is there's kind of a guns, germs, and steel narrative, I just, to, to borrow a book title that talked about this, narrative of how America's push westward happened. And it kind of goes that, well, smallpox killed a lot of people, and then the land was empty, and then settlers just moved into these empty places. And the reality that you point out in your book, which I think is really, really useful, is a lot of the Ohio Valley areas, like people actually sprang back. You know, you had a lot of death and a lot of loss, but their food systems were so robust and so low labor that a small number of people were still able to grow quite a lot. That might be me interpolating a little bit as a crop scientist. I look at how they grow stuff and I'm like, that's genius. And as a result, a small number of people in a very devastated community were still able to grow enough food to come back. And so that's why it actually took a long time for the United States and other Western societies to actually push into that land was you had very strong communities growing lots of food, giving them lots of time and strength and trading capability to get weapons and put up a military resistance. So when the U.S. came in, it wasn't really just flooding into empty land. It was we're ransacking your crop fields and starving you out rather than military victories. We're fast forwarding a bit <laughs> the content yeah. of your work, but I think yeah. maybe I would add a little bit to that because, you know, when you're talking about, frankly, this guns, germs, and steel really places much, much too great an emphasis on the role that disease played. You have to think about the geography. There is a mountain range mm-hmm. between the River Valley and the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Only if you think about the Atlantic coast, the only riverway that enters from the East Coast into anywhere near the Ohio River Valley is the St. Lawrence. All the other river valleys stop before the mountains. That means you have settlements like Jamestown founded in 1607 or Massachusetts Bay in 1630. But people don't automatically jump a thousand miles and cross the mountains. There is no need to. Mm-hmm. And so what you find is that the areas in the Ohio River Valley are ripe for trade. European traders are coming in here. What that means is that means intermarriage. It means that people have resistance to disease. Also, it doesn't wipe out ever in the Ohio River Valley, 90% of communities. There is no doubt that you have several epidemics, but basically the Ohio River Valley is shielded from these devastating epidemics that hit many of the coastal villages. And even there, you're going to find along the coastal villages that even if you have 10 or 20%, if you have a terrible epidemic wipes people out, you still have 10 or 20% left. They combine with other indigenous communities. Those are people with 
resistance to these diseases. So this whole idea that disease is kind of like the advanced warrior that's going to wipe out indigenous people, selectively, yes, it does. In villages that are very much on the coastal edge. But as you go inland, that appears less and less. And really, the only way you could get into the Ohio River Valley was to come through Iroquois lands. No one in the colonial world takes on the Iroquois. They are a formidable barrier at the entrance. The other entrance way into the Ohio River Valley is the Cumberland Gap. It is very, very small. It doesn't take you directly into the Ohio River Valley. And so these are not places that have devastating invasions of colonists. So you don't see for probably 200 years any sizable European movement into the Ohio River Valley. So that's a long time to adjust. So Diamond makes some exaggerated claims without considering environmental factors. And Sarah, you're absolutely right. In the Ohio River Valley, you have such an extended growing period of time. If a village suffers catastrophic outbreak of disease, and the number of villages that that happens to are very limited, but if they do, you still have 10 and 20% left, disease doesn't wipe out crops. And so people have food once they recover. And if they don't have food, they simply replant. In the Ohio River Valley, in certain parts, you can almost plant three crops during the growing season. So there's ways in which, because this is such a highly agrarian area, you are not going to see the same kind of scenario that plays out where, quote, Indians go into demise and decline. This is not going to be it. You're going to have to, in order to settle the Ohio River Valley, you are going to have to forcibly remove people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for running through that, because I think that highlights a couple things that are really important to kind of push back on some of the pop narratives we have of history. Even though those of us who want to do better, like this is the information that we're fed, basically, right? right. It's like, it is. Oh, yeah, disease wiped everybody out. And then uh, what can you do? It erases a lot of the agency of people who were doing the invading. And it also erases, like you mentioned, there were two centuries of very active trade between settlers on the coast and people in the Ohio Valley interior. And a lot of wealth being created in the Ohio Valley interior. You have a lot of indigenous communities really thriving for two centuries. Like, obviously, there were problems, like you'd have some intermarriage and some of the fur traders were good husbands. I'm sure some of them weren't, that kind of thing. But you have two centuries of very active trade, very active, not quite integration, but interaction between these two different sorts of societies and a lot of agency and a lot of just a lot of path setting that indigenous communities were doing for themselves in this two centuries that we just kind of forget happened. (laughs) Yes, you forget. And if you push this really far back and you think... So if you think about dates and you play with 1492, which is the arrival of Columbus, that's the 16th century. 
you don't get settlement in this country till 1607. It's 120 years later. During that period of time, what people are doing on the East Coast is they're engaged in the fishing trade. So if you look up at places like the Grand Banks from Canada to Maine, there are fishermen there from Portugal, from Spain, from France, and they are living on the mainland while they fish in the ocean. So they arrive in the spring, they leave in the fall. Many of those people actually stayed, those fishermen. They are involved in the trade, and the trade is a French trade that comes down from the St. Lawrence into the Ohio River Valley. That's a very different type of trade. It is not really a trade like you see when fur traders arrive in the late 18th and 19th century. And so they come, and they've come. If you think about it, and you're coming in from an area, if you're a Frenchman and you've been in the Basque fishing trade and you stay and you remain and you move into Montreal and Quebec because you are French, then basically when you engage in the fur trade, it takes you four months to get to the Ohio River. You don't just turn around, (laughs) stay there. The furs are not harvested until February and March. So you are there at least a year, if not two years. The only way you survive is if you marry an indigenous woman. And in fact, the only way indigenous people are going to trade with you is if you are related with them in some way. So the trade, when we talk about it, this fur trade, which is incredibly important in the Ohio River, because there are so many wetlands, because there are so many fur-bearing animals. Basically, those people only trade with relatives. If this is not an Englishman walking in with his canoe filled with trade goods and saying, hey, I want to trade with you, they are only going to trade for certain goods. He was like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, like, who are you? I don't need you. And, and you're lucky if you don't marry or you don't have relatives within indigenous communities, it's very likely that you're not going to survive. Yeah. Indigenous people are willing to integrate Europeans into their communities, Mm -hmm. just like they're going to integrate in escaped slaves. But they're also fairly choosy. They don't need you. There are already enough traders there and enough outlets for trade that you have to win the trust of indigenous people in the 16th and the 17th century in order to trade. And the only way you can generally do that is to marry into indigenous communities, even if you're just there for a year. Most traders generally stay two years and then go back it takes that long to accumulate enough birds. Yeah, to make it worth the trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's that, again, highlights something that's really important in kind of the American and, and to some extent Canadian mythology is that you have these guys who are like mountain men and fur traders and they're going off into the woods and living off the land <laughs> on their own. And I'm like, dude, they're couch surfing at their in-laws. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and the thing is, 
the trade that takes place west of the Mississippi in the mountains is a very different trade than in the Ohio River Valley. But in the 17th and the 18th and the early 19th century, and even throughout a good part of the late 19th century, people coming in who actually came in don't want to settle in wetlands. That's where Indians remain despite forcible removal. And the trade remains incredibly important in those areas. So, for instance, um, there are a number of large fur trade networks, and they're exporting, they're still exporting furs to Great Britain. And so we have records for that. And the fur trade comes through Montreal, it comes through Detroit, and it even heads down to New Orleans. So those are all ports that furs from the Ohio River Valley are coming out of and being shipped abroad. So we have records for that because the government taxed exports. And so the government was good at keeping those records. Right. Yeah. I think like to revisit a little bit, the reason that wetlands were so important here is when we're talking fur-bearing animals, we're talking beavers, otters, and then to some extent... You know, like Martins, I think those are further west, but a lot of the, no, the larger you, predatory mustelids You get huge numbers of one of the most important furs in the 19th century is going to be black raccoon. Mm. And, but to give you some idea, things like otter were furs that were highly prized. In fact, John Jacob Astor would trade the furs, the otter furs, from the Ohio River Valley and ship them off to China. So this is a global trade. So we just have this idea that these mountain men trudge west and they become fur traders. That is very different. The Ohio River Valley is very different. Women process all the furs. Women are the agriculturalists, but they are also the processors of furs. So they, in a sense, have a good say in what Indians get for those furs. Yeah, and that's a a point of your book I wanted to really highlight here was you mentioned women are responsible for the agriculture. So that's a whole thing we can talk about is what does it mean when women are doing the farming? Because in the West, we have a very nuclear family, one man, one woman, heterosexually married together, and the man does the field work and the woman does the domestic work. Very different situation. That is not, that's not how farming works. That's how white people do it, right? That's right. So (laughs) yeah, the Ohio Valley is a very different vibe. That's a thing we want to go into. And then also you mentioned women were doing the processing of most of the furs, which was their main export good. And so women are really, it's so funny to me because when we talk about gender roles, it's kind of very focused on the domestic thing and like, what does this mean for the family? Women were running the economy. They were the industrial powerhouse of this region that was very building a lot of wealth, building a lot of political stability, resilience, and honestly, military capacity. It was women who were running the economy. And um <laughs> It's not like men weren't doing anything. Like they did a lot of fishing, they did hunting, they did clearing forest areas, they did controlled burns. It's not like men didn't do anything. But when it comes to like producing the goods, that was women were running that. And so that led to a very different political as well as domestic situation in the Ohio Valley. That's right. And I think this is one of the things that is kind of difficult to understand. And the best way to think about it is that women controlled households. So, for instance, a household might have in it, if this, the clan was patrilineal, women still owned 
the household and control the distribution of goods within that household. But they also lived with either, if it was patrilineal, all of their father's relatives, all of their husband's relatives, who were, quote, a series of fathers to their children. Or if it was matrilineal, they lived with all of their sisters and the sisters' children. So a household might have 16 to 30 people in it. And it might be a cluster of cabins. They don't live in teepees. So they might live in log cabins becoming a really common thing in the Ohio River Valley. There might be a cluster of cabins in which a village might have clusters of five or six families like that. So a village might be 200 to 400 people. And so they carve out a niche in the Ohio River Valley. And so they have land along the river for their farms. They're adjacent to wetlands where they harvest an incredible number of crops. And the forests are right nearby, so men can hunt. And men have a very important role. They provide the protein. One of the things we know about indigenous societies is gender roles are very clearly defined, but women generally are not involved in killing anything. So the shedding of blood belongs to men. And so hunting and fishing are male pursuits. They're absolutely crucial because it's where the protein comes from. And without protein, people are not going to be healthy. So yes, men have a very important role, and you're right, they practice controlled burning. They know that by doing that in the spring, deer are attracted where they've burnt things. There are massive herds of both bison and elk and deer in the Ohio River Valley, and they are hunters. They provide the protein throughout the year. So you and I would not like to be the hunters. You and I would not like to spend January out in the woods. This is hard work. And so women's work is much more communal. So all of these fields that you see that stretch along these riverways are farmed by women, but it's communal work. So when planting comes, women from other villages, their relatives from other villages come in and they plant together. And those women then journey to another village and they plant together. So this is a different kind of work. And this probably evolves because women are the caretakers of children. And it becomes natural that then they also become the agriculturalists because this keeps them close to their village, where male pursuits are much more extensive, roam over larger geographical areas. Right. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you can have, like, again, if you're carrying a small child around, which is how it's going to be if you're having a small child at this time, like, you have to keep them with you. So it does slow you down somewhat, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhat. Yeah. And it's the Western family farm idea, again, like, it's, you know, Two adults. It's you know, nuclear. One, yeah, it's nuclear. It is the smallest unit you can possibly have and still be able to reproduce, like is basically what the Western family farm is. A lot of Eastern Woodlands communities, like you mentioned, the household is a much larger thing. And so you have mm-hmm. some more capacity for distributing work a little bit. 
And again, women slowed down a little bit by carrying kids around, but they're still going to other villages to do planting. They're not like running around all day, but they are taking trips to go see each other and, and go to all of that stuff. So in the West, we kind of have this idea that like farm work is something you do, like you live in the middle of your farm, you know, and that's as yeah. far as you go, like if you're doing farm work, but this is kind of a much more mobile thing. So again, we have this idea that like farming equals settled equals you stay in one place all the time. You can farm and move around quite a bit. <laughs> as someone who works in agriculture, that's what we do. Like there's only so many people who do certain specialized jobs. So we're always on the road. So to me, that's relatable. But I think a lot of folks who maybe don't do agriculture, we're kind of, we've got this little house in the prairie idea that like you've got your homestead and that's where you stay unless you have to go somewhere. Right. So yeah, like a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences there. One of the reasons why basically when historians wrote history in the 19th century, women's work was invisible because women were assumed to be in the house. And so the idea that women were out in the field developed really terrible stereotypes. It's where the term squaw comes from. Mm-hmm. They were demeaned because they thought that People writing at the time thought, oh, these women were abused because the men were so lazy. Mm-hmm. They forced Yeah, that's something I see work. a lot in the literature is like. Yeah, and you see that in the literature time and time again. And so, for instance, there are lots of ponds named Squaw Pond or Squaw Lake. And you can pretty much be assured that that's where indigenous villages had their agrarian field. Mm-hmm. So all of those terms that get used, they're not going to record that. They're going to see that as an abuse of women, because women can't stay in the home. Mm -hmm. But for indigenous women, they would travel it not huge distances, but often two or three days. They might be harvesting nuts in the woods. But it was always groups of women. So, you know, it's kind of like having a break from home. Get in the canoe, girls. We're going shopping. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We're going out. We're going to get hickory nuts. We're going out to harvest wild rice. So women did things together. This is why households, why if it was matrilineal, all the sisters lived together. Because they had a relationship to each other. And the children then also had a relationship generations there would be older people in the household there would be women there'd be young women and there'd be children so you often have two or three generations these are healthy people they're not dying off when they're 30 and the term elder comes from the fact that within indigenous societies elders are revered because There were people who lived to be in their 70s in these communities, where in comparable colonial societies, people were dying by the time they were 40. Yeah, they really worked a lot of people to death in the colonial uh, areas at that time. And it's wild to me because you had so many people running off to join indigenous communities. This is the thing we don't talk about much in our history, but if you know where to look, you'll see people like, yeah, once somebody like moves into an indigenous village, like they don't come back. (laughs) <laughs> because it was understood yes. the last and, time. And there's actually a term for it. They're called white Indians. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think that's very interesting, when you come into the Ohio River Valley, 
Indian zolspin don't look like the phenotypic stereotype we think of India as India. Yeah, like the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. We took some photos. Yeah. Yeah. And so this for the Odawa, the Miami, the Potawatomi, all of these people that are living in the Ohio River Valley have been intermarrying for several hundred years with Europeans. Now, some of them phenotypically look very, very Indian, but others look very white. You know, and so this is a confusing landscape in the 19th century for people. That's still a thing going on, like here in the eastern coast of the U.S. You know, we have the largest indigenous community east of the Mississippi here, right to the south of us. It's the Lumbee and Robeson County. And um, again, like you'll get a thing where people go like, well, they don't look native. And you're like, well, it's been 400 (laughs) years. Like, (laughs) you know, you're talking 200 years with probably at least... 600 fur traders arriving each year from about 1630 on. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And so something I I try to keep in mind and also like maybe advise other people to keep in mind is tribes are governments. It's not a racial group. No. That's how white people want to think of it because then it's easier to put people in a box and kind of like minimize the importance of these communities. But they are governments. They are nations that go back a very long time. And so when people say like being adopted into a tribe, I'm like, well, we call that naturalization, actually, because it's a political entity (laughs) and they can make rules about who's a citizen and they can decide who to adopt, like who to naturalize and who not to adopt. And so I think that can be a more helpful way to think of it, because the idea of indigenous as a racial category is not great. It's kind of a product of white people thinking maybe, oh, let's breed these people out and these these nations will just disappear. But they're political units. They have different ways that they live. There's like different approaches to natural resources. If you think of that as a political thing rather than like a bloodline thing, it starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah. And I think this is one of the problems. I mean, the government does of the 19th century impose blood quantum theory Mm -hmm. on indigenous people. You know, if you have a father that's white and a mother that's indigenous, by the second generation, that person, quote, according to the government's no longer an Indian, but Indian people don't think that way. Mm-hmm. So race is incredibly different. People are really shocked in the 19th century because they come in to the Ohio River Valley and there've been the riverways that carry Indians to trade routes also carry escaped slaves into the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. So you come into Indian villages and many of these escaped slaves have been taught trades. So they learn escaped slaves are really helpful to have around. They can help you make bricks. They can build fireplaces for you. They can be blacksmiths. So there is a desire to incorporate people that have specific skills And color for indigenous people does not have meaning. It is going to be imposed on them in the 19th century, whether they like it or not, because there's a way in which people want to imagine Indians to be racially different. And so, yes, race does matter, not to indigenous people, but to outsiders. And it is a way of excluding people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a really cool story, and I'm sure it's not the only only one like it. So in a lot of cases, 
most cases. I think white settlers took a very hostile attitude towards indigenous neighbors. But something I want to highlight is that was a choice. It did not have to be that way. There's not like an inborn animosity, right? So there's a really cool story of, do you remember the Palatine peasants who assimilated into the Mohawk communities? So like, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but I think it's a really interesting story. So there's this really, really crazy cold winter sometime in the early 1700s in Germany, Killed a lot of trees, killed livestock, and so you have a bunch of peasants in that area who are now destitute, and they just start building rafts and rafting their way out down the Rhine. They wind up in London somehow, a bunch of them, and kind of throw themselves upon whatever charity apparatus is operating in 18th century London. Good luck. And so the British Empire is like, oh, we can take care of you. Come on over to our sawmills in upstate New York or whatever they're calling it at the time. We can set you up. Come out out with us. And basically put them to work in these backwoods sawmills, cutting down trees to make naval ships, right? And also to serve as kind of a human barrier, like human buffer between the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois League, and the French and the English. So they (laughs) like, we're going to put you between us and everybody else so that if there's a raid, you get hit first. And also to cut down trees. (laughs) Yes. And at some point, like whatever sawmill project they were planning just fell through and the English pull out and they leave the Palatine peasants there. They just leave. And so the Palatines, like, they're cut off from their supply lines. They weren't really allowed to farm much because they're supposed to be busy cutting down trees. They're straggling through the woods, I think, in winter at some point, And they run into some older Mohawk ladies in the woods. And they're just like, please, can you help us? We're starving. Can you hook us up with whoever's in charge here? Not realizing that for the Mohawk, the old ladies they were talking to were in charge, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so the ladies are like, you're not French and you're not English, but you know how to farm? get in here (laughs) and so they set up a rental arrangement basically where the palatines would get a couple years free because you know to get back on their feet and then they would pay rent on the land which is a a pretty standard arrangement or tribute or whatever you want to call it like we're going to use the land we're going to exchange with you for that yeah they're more than willing to rent yes Mm -hmm. yeah and those communities got along pretty well if i understand correctly a lot of german last names are still out there in the mohawk community there's quite a bit of intermarriage and so, like, that relationship does not have to be hostile. Hostility was a choice that a lot of people made. Yeah, no, there's lots of examples of people who come into the Ohio River Valley that are welcomed, that are given land. There's not a lot of them because, really, once the revolution takes place and the United States gains control over the lands all the way to the Mississippi, the political leaders decide that they're going to divide that up into states. And that's really where the hostility breaks out. Yeah. It's really at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to emphasize like the, you know, that relationship with the Palatines and the Mohawks wasn't like all unicorns and rainbows, right? Palatines right. were bringing in a lot of certain agricultural skills, metalworking skills, which was like, cool, they can do stuff. This is great. So they knew how to work for themselves, which I think helped. means a lot. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like... No, it, yeah. and they do bring skills. I mean, particularly amongst the Seneca, another Iroquois tribe that's closer to the Ohio River Valley. They're kind of the western door into Iroquois lands. They basically learn either from the French or from people who have come, German immigrants. They learn how to propagate trees. Mm -hmm. Apple orchards, I mean, there are extensive apple orchards among the Seneca. And women know how to graft. 
wild apple orchards produce all kinds of crazy fruit. Apple trees that are grafted onto the other root systems and taken care of produce prodigious crops of the same types of apples. But they learn that very early from foreigners. Mm -hmm. So if you think about indigenous people, you kind of have to stop thinking about the fact that they're not entrepreneurial, that they're not farming. All the things that we've attributed to, quote, Indians are probably myths that we create. And some of them are myths to justify why you remove them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want their land, you can't say, oh, these are civilized people. You have to instead portray them as uncivilized. Yeah, it's it's wild to me how I think it was George Washington and also his father were surveyors, which is such a nice way to say they were professional casers of the joint. Um, you know, (laughs) going out into indigenous lands and like looking at their crop fields and like quantifying their corn yields and going, yeah, when we get this, we're going to make gangbusters money by growing crops here because we can tell the soil is good. Right. And then they're going back home and telling everybody "Mm, they don't farm. Mm, They're wasting the natural resources. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) If your major goal is to acquire that land, then you have to justify why you're going to remove people from that land or why you're going to fight people or why you're going to say they don't have the same lifestyle as us. And they don't. Women are farming. Martha Washington doesn't get out in the fields. There are different gender roles. And that's what makes them foreign mm-hmm. in Washington's eyes. It's really amazing to me how much just the importance of gender roles in the Western eye, they do it differently, therefore they have to be squashed. There was some part in Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia where he is complaining about how Algonquian women were having too many abortions and spending too much time plucking their body hair. And like, these ladies are living in 3023. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is so bad about it. And he was like, they've got to be stopped. <laughs> yeah. No. And I mean, truthfully, things like herbs that were used often to induce abortion. It's not frequent, but the knowledge of herbs and how to use them comes out of indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. They do know if, for instance, you and I in the spring might go into the forest and see jack-in-the-pulpits and think, oh gosh, they're so beautiful. Or we see milkweeds along the road and we think, oh, those are just weeds. But the pods of milkweed, when cooked in a large pot, taste like okra. If you dry jack-in-the-pulpits, they can be used for salt. So it also is ways in which Western society grew crops and they didn't do things like harvest wetlands. Yeah. I also want to say, like, wild foods take very specific preparation. It's a little more complicated than boiling. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> yes, it's more complicated, but it's knowledge cool. that's down from generation to generation. So you know what plants to harvest and when. And how to process them so that they're okay to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you're right. This is not because... 
you have the nuclear farm in the East. And you don't have generations farming together and living close to each other so that they share farming tasks. It is much more difficult in that society to pass down agrarian knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah, knowledge about the landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's just like many hands make light work and that's just not something the family farm model like really allows to happen. You're just busy grinding all the time. And then like when. <laughs> like- that's right. And labor. I mean, one of the reasons that farms took so long in the East is they just didn't have the labor to transform all those lands, you might spend your entire life just being able to transform 50 acres of forest land into farmland. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a long time. You don't have help. That's why you have all of those children. They're labor. (laughs) Yeah. And like, so having been a child farm laborer myself, and like, I feel like it's important to point out that children aren't great at very intense manual labor. They're pretty bad at it. The reason it's appealing to, quote, have kids as free labor is because they belong to you. They are property. So their work might be crap, but it's yours. Whereas other people you have to pay, right? And so this is... Yeah. And truthfully, you know, if you want to take it a step further, if you want to push it forward, there is no currency in the 17th and the 18th century. It is the British pound. Mm -hmm. There's not money coming in to support these colonies. So almost everything is a border system. The only trade you get money for is if your crop gets carried to the Caribbean. And it's a monetary crop that the ship owner gets paid for. But often this whole colonial world functions on credit. It doesn't have hard currency. So If you want to buy an indentured laborer, you know, that's coming in on a ship, you have to have hard money. That's not possible. And you're right. Kids are not great workers. But by the time they're nine or 10, they get to be a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And they're only free labor if you count like pregnancy and nursing and the time you spend getting to eight or nine as if you think that time is worthless because women's time is worthless, then yeah, kids are free labor. So there's there's a lot embedded in that concept. Oh, there's a lot embedded in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a crop scientist, so like just a quick bit of background, uh, I've spent a lot of time working with U.S. agriculture and 95% of the farms in the U.S. are family farms. And so the logistics of the family farm and what they have to do to be able to like actually produce enough to make a living on even back in the day, this is not a modern problem. The family farm is logistically a very bad model. That is the conclusion I've come to as someone whose like job is raising crops for a living. And so this is part of my interest in indigenous food systems is I think it can be very, there can be kind of a patronizing air to it of like, oh, look at the little corn squash and bean gardens. This is such nice historical recreation. And I'm like, logistically, they did things different and it was good. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it... A typical village in the Ohio River Valley, let's say along the Wabash, which is one of the most fertile um, river valleys. Along the Wabash, villages were generally 200 to 400 people. Mm -hmm. Now, the social structure of indigenous communities is interesting. If you're part of a clan, let's say the Turtle Clan, you can't marry someone from within that clan. 
you have to marry external to that clan. So if you're a man, you might go to an adjoining village where there's a deer clan and find a wife in that village. If it's patrilineal, you bring her back into your village. If it's matrilineal, you go live in her household. In either case, people are bringing agrarian knowledge with themselves. And so that extends it. But if you think about these villages, people had home gardens. So you had extensive agrarian fields that women planted communally in the spring. Corn, there were different types of corn. You grew five different types of corn. So one household might grow flint corn. The field next to it might be flower corn. So along the rivers, you might have 300 acres of field. But then next to your series of cabins, you would have what's called a home garden. And that's where you grew the other vegetables. That's where you grew pumpkins. That's where you grew different types of beans. It's where you might grow potatoes. And then you have the wetlands where you're harvesting almost 50 to 60% of your diet. And then you have the woods where you're harvesting other types of plants, but you're also harvesting nuts to make breads to flavor stews. So, yeah, agrarian pursuits are more than just growing corn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's this thing that I find people like anthropologists and historians can often describe it as like, well, they were agricultural, but not fully agricultural because they were still foraging and still fishing and hunting. And I'm like, (laughs) I wouldn't call that not fully a thing. I would call that they're ambidextrous. They know how to do both. But if you call it that, you might feel like you know less. So we can't do that. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, one of the reasons for growing this much corn is you're growing a surplus. So you don't need 360 acres to feed this size village, but you need it to trade. Mm -hmm. And what you're trading is for the agrarian communities further north. So for instance, the Ojibwa don't have a full growing season. They experience repeated crop failures because of the cold, the unexpected cold in the spring that kills the corn crop. So women are growing corn to trade. Yeah, I saw a thing you mentioned, I thought it was really interesting, was a lot of the furs are coming from far enough north that you can't grow corn there. And so a lot of communities in the south were growing corn for export and like shipping it across the Great Lakes by canoe, like by manual paddling. And that was how a lot of the Ohio Valley economy functioned. And I thought that was really interesting because, again, white people think they invented international food trade. (laughs) No. And you had places very early. I mean, At the time, you had the fishing trade in the 1500s. Um, You have villages along the St. Lawrence, like Tadasak, where there are 20,000 indigenous people in the summer months who come to trade. And then you have all of these fishing ships that are in that often trade with indigenous people at these villages. Those furs go back to Europe. That's the source of the fur trade. But also, 
People come from throughout the Great Lakes to trade along the eastern seaboard, but they come from really far north because if you're far north, it is much preferable to get corn and give them your furs because you can't grow corn. Mm -hmm. So the Cree don't really produce corn, but they produce furs. And the people in Maine, Massachusetts, are up in the St. Lawrence River Valley trading for those first. This is really, really early. And this trade network extends all the way out to California. Yeah, I think I want to circle back to something you mentioned. Was it there were villages, towns of 10 to 20,000 people, and you see them in the records continually framed as villages. And I'm like, that's funny, because when a town had 10 to 20,000 people in the white part of the continent, we called that a town or a city. And we didn't call it a trading post. We called it a port town. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one of the things is that when we say 20,000, remember, that's a number of people that come in mm-hmm. from April all the way through to October. Yeah. I mean, that's normal for a port town, though, right? You have a lot of. Yeah. They're, they're coming into trade and all the fishermen are there trading. Mm-hmm. This is how iron goods, in other words, You can find a kettle in a grave in the Great Lakes from the late 1500s, but there are no traders here. Mm -hmm. So those trade goods are moving from the east all the way into the Great Lakes, all the way down the Mississippi River Valley, all the way up the Missouri. Not an archaeologist, but the Ohio Valley had trade networks going back like what i think at least four thousand years like this was an active trading zone for a very very long time people were moving all over it's the a place. very yeah cahokia once cahokia breaks up many of those people move into the ohio river valley mm-hmm. and so they've been trading for a really long time so archaeologists who look at grave goods in the ohio river valley you find copper you find quartz you find things from um, the Rocky Mountains in grave goods. So you know that these trade networks have been around a very long time. Yep, for sure. I want to circle back to the orchards because that's a big thing we wanted to cover. It's been a while since I read your book. Correct me if I got this wrong. You mentioned that there were grafted orchards. I think there were also orchards of seedling apples. The book mentions that they think some of the fruit were used for dyeing like dyeing cloth, if I got yeah, that Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. Can you fill us in a little bit on that? Sure. So let me kind of explain how we know this because people say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Jesuits, the French sent the Jesuits into the Great Lakes very early. And the Jesuits are just wonderful. If you've ever read the Jesuit relations, there's volumes and volumes that were published. These were like, bestsellers, 17th and 18th century France that couldn't wait to read the latest relations from, quote, North America. And the Jesuits basically traveled huge, huge distances, distances you and I just can't even fathom. But you would probably in the 1600s, you had Jesuits coming down from Mackinac And they came all the way into Detroit, and then they visited with the people there because they were related to the people at Mackinac. And 
they came in, they described um, what they saw along Lake Erie. They went down the Sandusky River, and they are probably the first to describe the tremendous apple orchards that had been built at the nexus of streams. So these were wild apple orchards, but then with time, they learned to graft. And so you had villages amongst the Seneca, amongst the Erie, amongst the Huron, even amongst the Miami, all the way up to the Odawa along the Michigan coastline, heading up towards Mackinac, who actually had apple orchards in which they grafted those trees. So they probably learned a lot of that knowledge from the Jesuits probably from some Frenchmen coming in, but basically from the Jesuits. What we also know is that they traded not just seeds of apples, but they traded pits of other fruits. So, for instance, the Franciscans introduced peaches into Florida. Those peach pits traveled all along the Atlantic coast, up into Delaware, so that when the first Swedish explorers arrive in Delaware, they think peaches are indigenous to the region. I got a follow-up peach story on that, but we'll we'll finish your thing. Yeah, (laughs) those peach pits then travel throughout the Ohio River Valley. They keep on pushing west all the way into Wisconsin. So that you begin to see, even before Europeans arrive, this growth of orchards, because that's another stable source of food and food that you can use to dye cloth, to flavor stews, to flavor dishes. So you and I... It's not that people didn't take peaches and eat them as peaches, that they were primarily used for flavoring foods. You would dry Fresh peaches are super perishable, so yeah. Yeah, so you would dry them. And those were things that they used throughout the winter months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suspect, and I don't know how grounded this is in literature or anything, but I suspect that if you're growing fruit like seedling apples that are very sour you know they have sugars in them but they're also very sour they're acidic and they're full of tannins another thing they're good for is preserving meat because if you that's right yeah like there's a lot of ways to do it you want to dry it you want to salt it you can smoke it you can also mix it with high tannin acidic fruits and kind of let it do some fermentation with the sugars that are left and the tannins will help preserve it so the one recipe i know for sure is is lakota it's wishna which is like bison meat with cranberries because they have sugar they have acid they have tannins yeah you have apples doing the same thing. You can also use those to preserve meat. So I don't know for a fact that that's what they were doing with it. But I know they had to preserve a lot of meat. And I know they probably had some spitter apples. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> that's this is no. yeah. And this is probably, I mean, sure, we have to guess at some of this. But the way in which in the 1680s and 1690s, these Jesuits are describing the fruits that they see, these wild apple trees growing along these riverways, they have to be doing something more with them than just eating them because yeah. you're, many right. of them are too bitter to eat. So what are you growing them for? 
And basically, Indigenous women are not going to waste that. There's a reason they're growing. Yeah. And so I think it's used to preserve a lot of things. Yeah. It's used to preserve fish. Nothing is more quick to spoil than fresh fish. And so there's different ways you learn to preserve it. Yeah. And like, to be clear, you know, as you know, we're talking about the past because we're talking about the history of things that happened in the Ohio Valley, but a lot of these communities are still around and they're doing a lot of rehab on their food systems. So those are interviews I definitely want to have. And I also wanted to just like set the historical groundwork for like, this is what food systems used to look like. These are some alternatives before kind of pulling those people on the air and being like, now explain to us how it used to work, right? Like we'll do yeah. our homework. And then we're talking, we're going to talk to people today doing things like pulling that back today. But I kind of wanted to lay the groundwork before like making people explain everything and then explain what they're doing now. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Yeah. No, and it's very hard. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a wonderful article last week in the New York Times about Menominee forest lands mm. and how the Menominee forest lands are highly productive. They make a lot of money off of the forest lands, but they also basically have a different way of processing that lumber. They don't use machinery. It's all hand cut. And so the trees are much larger. They make more money when they go to the sawmills, but they have the most productive forest in all of the United States. That is passed down from generation to generation. If you say to a Menominee, how did you learn to do that? He will just simply say, I learned it from my grandfather. I learned it from my father. Westerners want a pinpoint source of when that happened. And that becomes the real problem for explaining Indigenous history. We can't give you a pinpoint. And people get really frustrated because you say, okay, well, they're practicing agriculture throughout the Ohio River Valley. It probably starts 600 AD, maybe earlier. And by 1000 AD, we know that they have a long the river bottoms, 360 acres of cornfield. That we can kind of locate, but why or how that starts, we don't have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. And so some of it, you just have to assume if they're growing all of those trees, they're doing something with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like just generally assume that like, when people do a thing that takes a lot of work, maybe they know why. They're doing yeah, it. yeah. I, they, you have to make the assumption that they know why. Before they're growing corn, they're growing sumpweed. They're cultivating sumpweed. Because that's a crop, they can cultivate. Corn then becomes a natural substitute. So we know those kinds of things from archaeological work of what transpires in those fields. But how or why that change occurs we can't really pinpoint very accurately, nor can we explain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like the idea that you have to, in order to make it real is like, well, it's just, we know what we know. Okay. And I think that's hard because if you ask someone who's Pokagon Potawatomi, well, when did you start growing apples? He may say, we don't grow apples. But at one point they did grow apples. Mm -hmm. They may not do it anymore. But if you ask him, well, when did you start doing that? He doesn't, he doesn't have a time frame for you because time is measured differently in indigenous societies than it is in Western society. Yeah. Well, I think like 
it's really easy to take it for granted. Like, of course, everyone has a calendar and we, we number the years, um, but that's just not always a priority. <laughs> that's just something yeah. they started doing in Mesopotamia. And they had their, for the longest time, even though in Egypt, it was always like in the third year of the reign of so-and-so, they didn't number the years. They were just kind of like, well, there's an order to the Kings and we kind of roughly. So even in the West, yeah. it's a much more recent invention that we like to think to actually have a number to the years. And we have it once the railroads standardize time, you know, and create time zones. It's only then that we put such clear numbers on when change occurs. Because basically, a farmer works from sunup to sundown. They don't say, oh, three o'clock time for my lunch break or something, you know. Yes, like, is there light? Okay, because I'm working. (laughs) Yeah, and this is what's different about agrarian pursuits, and it's what's different about living off the land. It's knowledge that's passed down from generation to generation. A farmer that's out there in the Midwest growing corn is not all of a sudden going to decide to do a new crop. It's fine. As my understanding, and you can comment on this, Sarah, it's hard to get farmers to change. They're used to growing certain crops in certain ways. They have a certain routine. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And so if all of a sudden you say you'd really be better off growing this crop than that crop, it takes some kind of incentive for that to happen. You have to rebuild a whole new routine around it. And that's more of a pursuit than just taking on one new crop. There's a whole routine reshuffle that has to happen. Yes. Something something I think is really interesting is, again, you mentioned the peer-to-peer learning. I think we kind of take it for granted that that's how the West works too. Like that's how Western farmers did all these family farms. Of course, like if you're starting a family farm, it's because you grew up on a family farm because everyone used to farm. That is not true. A lot of the people who acquired property to start a farm had no experience farming in the West. It was just kind of a land grab economic model more than a... The idea that family farmers were self-sufficient is really overblown. If you look at the historical records, it was mostly just property ladder stuff. They were like, I've got a nest egg. I'm going to go get property. You can't do that if you're poor. It was kind of a middle-class property acquisition kind of thing to do. Squatters were poor. That's why they were squatters. They didn't have a title. That, um, that's right. That's why they're squatters. And frankly, I talk about this in the book. I mean, one of the most devastating things for in all of these indigenous communities north of the Ohio River Valley are the squatters that are coming into Kentucky, particularly Yeah. They have nothing, mm-hmm. but go across the river and you level an Indian village. Yeah. They're not coming in and saying, Hey, can we rent some land? Where would be a good place to go? They're yeah. just like, we're here. It's mine now. Yeah. And there isn't, I mean, if you transform Indian into being savage and uncivilized in your mind, that justifies why you go across the river and take the things that they have. But squatters, I mean, I don't think we have any idea of how poor people were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, people were trying to leave the colonies and start their own thing for a reason. And so, like, I think the history of westward expansion and the history of labor exploitation in the U.S. colonies are way more linked. And that's a thing I would love to explore some more. But we're talking about agriculture today. I don't know. It's just like... Farmers at the time, like the wealthier, more established farmers, like would write letters to each other about how important it was to keep people from leaving and going and squatting because then they would be forced to stay here and scoop out my stables for me for pennies. It'll force wages down. And so when that's the attitude, it's like, well, no wonder people are trying to leave all the time. And then that's right. 
because the poor people were enacting personally the violence towards indigenous communities. They're like, oh, those poor trashy people, they're racist. Like this, this is kind of a thing that we still see today is like, oh, it's the poor people who are racist. And I'm like, why are they poor? And why are they trying to take stuff from other people? It is not an excuse. Yeah. But it does imply maybe the people at the top of our colonial society have some responsibility for how it unfolds. <laughs> so. No. And the descriptions of the squatters that come into Kentucky, I mean, they're walking. You and I just, can you imagine walking from Pittsburgh to Kentucky? And then what can you carry with you? You don't have, most people, they don't have horses. Yeah, they're like, they got a bindle and they're just going. That's right. And they have one set of clothes. I mean, that's it. Mm -hmm. One set of shoes, one pair of pants. Mm -hmm. You can't even carry farm implements with you. If you're a squatter, the only way you can get most of that stuff is to go across the Ohio River Valley, join with other Kentucky people, and raid Indian villages. That's the source of where you get agricultural implements from. And people don't think about that. Mm -hmm. But they are leaving horrendous conditions. That's the tragedy of it, is like, there were a lot of times when people in those economic conditions just kind of like said, hey, is it cool if I move in here? Is there a job that I can do? Can I naturalize? Can I integrate in this community? That was an option that people had. But thanks to demonizing indigenous people and kind of the white habit of treating them as like, oh, they're uncivilized and savage and merciless and all this stuff, which is literally in the Constitution. Um, right. There's no reasoning with them, and there's the, you can't do that. They're not real people, and so it's not a place where you can just move and maybe become part of their thing. You got to take stuff from them. Yes, basically, if you're moving west and you come across an indigenous village as 360 acres of cornfields, would you rather have 360 acres of cornfields, or would you rather go out and chop the forest down? Right, breed. For land, mm -hmm. what pushes the westward movement, mm -hmm. you know, and it's greed for Indian land. And in a sense, indigenous people survive by either removing themselves from where newcomers squat on their lands, or they remove themselves to lands that are less desirable. They remove themselves to wetlands, which is why they're still there. Mm hmm. Yeah, Robeson County, like, again, the largest indigenous community east of the Mississippi, it's a big old swamp. And that so people gravitated towards there. And then like, just white society just kind of settled in around it. And now that's, we're all just kind of still doing that. But every time yeah. there's a hurricane, they lose a month of school because they're in the swamp. They're in the swamp. No, in fact, I'm working on a project now, which is in the Indiana Dunes, and it's an indigenous Odawa family that moves into there in 1820 removal is going to start in the 1830s. They're never removed. And their post, fur trade post that they start, they bring all their family with them, all brothers, sisters, everyone that you can name. And they set up a trading post. It is still there. The last family member dies in 1911. The house is never taken down. It's still there. So is the original house that they lived in. It's owned by the National Park Service. It probably is the last remaining homestead like that in the old Northwest. In fact, that's what it gets called because that's the way it gets reinvented, an old homestead in the old Northwest. 
it's actually an indigenous village. Mm, my goodness. Fur trade and is there until the 20th century. Wild. So these places do, there's not many of them left, but they do exist, as you point out, in the swamplands because there is nothing more swampy than Northwest Indiana or North Indiana and Southwest Michigan. Right. I want to circle back to something. You mentioned peach orchards. So this is actually a really important chapter in the history of the Southern peach industry is Cherokee. I think Catawba and a lot of the other tribes in the Southeast took to peaches. Like they were like, these are good. We're going to grow lots of these. (laughs) Um, And again, like if you have a tradition of agroforestry, because a lot of these communities are already relying on chestnuts, which is a forest tree, there's like wild plums and fruit trees as well that are already indigenous here. But when the tree crops from the West show up, they're like, oh, these are good too. We'll incorporate these into our system because we already do food forestry, right? This feels normal to us. As opposed to maybe livestock farming, which didn't really take off so much in indigenous communities. As a horticulturalist, I can relate. There's kind of a feeling that like, well, animals are like, they're loud. They're smelly. They're always stepping on your stuff and eating your plants and making like pooping yes. all over everything. I don't want them around me. <laughs> so like meat came from hunting as opposed to raising livestock. And that. Again, as a horticulturalist, I just feel like that's really relatable. That is also how I feel. But orchards, you know, because trees for food is already a thing that they did. They're like, oh, cool. There's more trees for food. Let's do some more of these, right? So peaches took <laughs> off. They really do like warmer conditions. And so there were, the South was just full of peach orchards by the time a lot of white settlers showed up. I've heard a lot of different versions of why every street in Atlanta is called peach tree this, peach tree that. Uh, <laughs> but that is one of them. And so... The genes talk from that. Okay, so of course they're selecting for trees that are performing better in a humid southeast climate. It, peaches and other stone fruit traditionally like it drier. But if you have that much peach orcharding going on for that long, you're going to have a lot of people selecting for trees that perform better. And so my understanding is the southern peach industry today, like most Georgia peaches are actually grown in South Carolina, but the southern <laughs> peach industry is still based on the genetics that Cherokee, Catawba, and other other indigenous communities in the southeast prepared by doing this orcharding for a very long time. If you're a peach breeder in the south, in their programs today, they'll still be driving along. And if they see a wild peach tree, they will go take a snip and they will go grow in the lab and like use it to pollinate stuff. Yeah, um, no, no. And I mean, what's kind of very interesting about this, I mean, it's the same even you move to grow peaches or mulberries or whatever you're going to grow because you're used to growing fruit. It's a source of food. Mm -hmm. But there's ways in which they are selecting what works best in their area. I mean, this is true for corn. We know, for instance, that they kept the best corn for seed corn for the next spring. They basically learned to do things like put the corn in water in the spring so that it germinated quicker. And so these are practices that indigenous women hand down from generation to generation. And it's why these fields are so productive, because they're not just keeping any kind of seed. They're selecting the better seeds to keep for the following spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, It kind of loops back to something we already talked about, which is, again, uh, the peer-to-peer learning. That was something that was happening in indigenous communities. You're getting trained as you grow up. That wasn't necessarily happening for Western farmers. A lot of them were like, well, I used to be a butcher, and now I'm on the property ladder, and I'm in the backwoods, right? They may not have a lot of experience farming. For a lot of people, I'm sure they did, but it was not nearly the rule. 
And so you look out into U.S. history and we talk about the land-grant system as this huge victory and like we're doing stuff for the little people and we're helping little people farm. Let's examine the fact that the U.S. government knew that people who were farming needed training. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem indigenous communities had. They already knew how to breed corn. They already knew about keeping their gene lines separate. Still farm like (laughs) my first job was detasseling corn, like making fancy hybrid corn for farmers to plant. You don't need fancy hybrid corn. And if you really want it, you can make it yourself. It's not hard. 14-year-olds do it all the time, right? And so that's kind of a wild thing to me that we treat as a crop scientist. We treat crop science like this arcane dark art. And a lot of it's actually pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, we do a lot of genetic manipulations now, but that's mostly patent rent-seeking. If you're trying to make money as a farmer, you actually do things very differently because Roundup Ready is great and all. Like, it drives me wild when people complain about farmers being, quote unquote, forced to buy genetically modified crops. Nobody is making them do it. They're just complaining. Like, it's a lazy way to farm. I'll say it as a crop scientist. You can, like, you can disavow all knowledge of this, right? But as a crop scientist, I will tell you that is lazy farming, right? And so this idea that farmers are forced to do things that way, I'm like, but nobody forced you to be lazy. Get it together or, like, just mind your business, Okay. And again, this is a part of my interest in indigenous farming is you had these communities that were doing the work themselves of creating their own gene lines. They were maintaining those gene lines. They were training people. And we're so used to kind of looking down on those communities and saying like, oh, they're just like not really civilized and blah, blah, blah. They were building human capital. They yeah. had knowledge. They knew what they were doing. And then we as Westerners take it so for granted that farming is for everyone. It's for amateurs. It's like beginner friendly. And it's just like, what? <laughs> not if you're trying to make no, a living. And, and actually, I mean... The government was very good at keeping records. We know, for instance, that because indigenous women practice no-till agriculture, they get higher crop yields. Mm -hmm. The government in the 19th century is so interested in keeping farming statistics because they're so invested in creating every person as a farmer Mm -hmm. that what you see very clearly is once they bring the plow in, Mm The crop yields drop tremendously. Yeah, Jane Mount Pleasant did that. And I need, I've need i interviewed her before and I need to bring her on for like a full podcast because as an agronomist, like my socks are rolling up and down. She's an agronomist. She's like, here's the data. I'm like, yes. Yes. And so we know that once we have this image that the plow is what civilizes the West, mm-hmm. well, the plow is what creates paucity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not bringing civilization west it's creating lands that are losing their fertility Mm -hmm. and i think this is tremendously different i think that we don't really fully conceptualize this we think somehow these inventions that came west with farmers created better farm landscapes and they actually degraded landscape Mm -hmm. And it's like filling in the wetlands. The wetlands are so extensive in the Ohio River Valley. It's one of the largest wetlands in the nation. It extends from Lake Erie 120 miles. Mm -hmm. It's 40 miles wide. It's called the Black Swamp. Once you start filling that in, and it's going to be in the late 19th century, you fill that in. You create not rich farmlands, but once you start plowing that really fertile land that was wetlands, Mm -hmm. in five or six years, you create crop yields 
that just dip down to nothing. Yeah, it's a mess. The thing is, it's really hard to change once you do it. Mm-hmm. It's yep. really hard to go back and do it in a better way that's better for the land. The wild thing is it's totally doable. And our main problem in U.S. agriculture is that we're growing too much stuff. That's why the prices are low. And it's so funny to me because everybody's like, we need to save farmers. I'm like, do you understand that what is going on here is we stole too much land. We stole so much land, it is way more than we need to feed ourselves. But everybody who's got a farm now is expected to make money off of it. And they want to get a tax break and you have to farm to get the farmer tax break. That's why we're growing too much stuff. If we gave some of it back, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting because one of the things we know is that if you can redo these wetlands and put them back in, I mean, this is what they're doing out in California. They've turned over portions of forest land to indigenous people to recreate wetlands. Mm-hmm. So they're bringing beaver in. And beaver are extending the wetlands because if you create breaks, then you don't have these devastating forest fires. Yeah. Yeah. And the <laughs> same is true here. We wouldn't have coastal flooding along all the Great Lakes if we recreated the wetlands so we had something to absorb the water. Mm-hmm. Very hard to redo something where you so radically change the landscape. Yeah, I mean, it's doable. We just don't really have, like, you have to set aside the time and money and do it. That's the part that's hard. Actually, doing the work is not so bad. It's deciding to do it. (laughs) Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Sarah. I think farmers want to make money because they're farming. Mm -mm. It's more complicated than that. But they want to have property and stay on the property ladder and hold that property while it accumulates value, and they want to farm to get a tax break. That's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's colonial land occupation all the way down. It's great. 